You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome. Today, rather than look at one case in particular detail, I want to look at two separate issues. The first is a recent decision of an Irish adjudication officer, which dealt with the question as to whether an employer is allowed to refuse to pay paternity leave when at the same time paying generous maternity leave. This is a decision that we've wanted to cover for some time in this series, but we haven't been able to fit it in, so it's good to be able to get to it at last. The second issue I want to look at is the recently enacted Mediation Act 2017 and the issues and opportunities that presents for employers under Irish law. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last episode. For those of you watching the GDPR, you'll be aware that it will require draft legislation to implement it into Irish law. All expectations are that that draft legislation will be published in the coming weeks, before the Christmas break. We're also hearing an increased amount of speculation in recent days that the way it's going to be implemented is by way of supplemental legislation which will be read in existence or in conjunction with the two existing acts, rather than an entirely new act which will replace and repeal the existing ones. Our experience of where European law is introduced on this basis has been less than satisfactory. The difficulty is it will make what is already going to be a complex area of practice even more difficult to work with in operations as you try and work out the three pieces of legislation together. Hopefully, the speculation is no more than that, but we'll keep you updated. If you are interested in this topic and in particular the impact on HR, have a look at one of our earlier podcasts on this issue, where we spoke to Anne-Marie Bowen, a partner in our technology and innovation group, on the HR issues involved in the GDPR. For anyone following the Gender Pay Gap Information Bill, that legislation has now passed the third of our five stages in the parliamentary process. There's no timetable as yet as to when this legislation is going to be passed, but all speculation is that it will be sooner rather than later, which usually would mean within the next three to six months. Again, this is something we covered in an earlier podcast in its earlier form. But in essence, what this legislation will do, if passed, is authorise the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission to introduce a new statutory regime requiring employers to provide information on the pay gap in their organisations. As currently drafted, it will apply to all employers with 50 employees or more though we understand that the government intends to increase that limit from 50 to 100. In short, it will require employers to provide information on the average hourly rate paid to male employees compared to female employees, and likewise the average bonus paid to male employees against female employees. The fines under the current draft legislation are up to €5,000 for an offence. But most interestingly, there's also provision for a register of offenders, so to speak where employers who are found to have breached this legislation will be named and shamed on this list. In my view, in talking to employers about this, with the heightened focus on the gender pay gap in the workplace as well as equality in the workplace generally, having your name on that list of offenders is probably going to be a much more effective deterrent for employers given the impact it could have on an employer's reputation in the market. Finally, if your business is involved in the gig economy and you're following the ongoing saga around the Uber drivers, and in particular the question as to whether or not they are independent contractors or employees, the saga has reached its next stage. 
This week, the UK Employment Appeals Tribunal has confirmed an earlier tribunal decision which concluded that the Uber drivers were not independent contractors and were instead workers. Workers under UK law is a specific statutory concept that is neither an employee nor an independent contractor, but is certainly closer in comparison to an employee in that the workers are entitled to minimum wage and paid annual leave. So it challenges the very basis of the Uber model and many other employers in the gig economy who rely upon individuals providing their services as independent contractors and not employees. All expectations were that whoever lost this stage of the case was going to appeal it in any event, so it's likely that the case will come on before the UK Supreme Court as part of a related appeal next February. We'll keep you updated on that. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. Let me turn now to the first item I want to cover today, and that's the Mediation Act 2017. We did previously cover this draft legislation in an earlier podcast when it was at a more basic form. In short, the stated purpose of this legislation is to facilitate the increased use of mediation as a means of resolving disputes rather than matters going before the Irish civil courts. And there's no doubt that mediation generally has become a much more popular means of resolving disputes over the last five to ten years, even within the area of workplace disputes. For those of you not familiar with mediation in practice and how it works, it's effectively a private dispute resolution process, which is run on the basis of agreed terms of engagement between the parties to the dispute. It's overseen by an independent mediator who is jointly appointed by the two parties to the dispute. The mediator's role is to try and broker an agreement between the two parties and reach a resolution. The model is obviously premised on the basis that the two individuals or the two parties to the dispute do want to reach a resolution. Most parties who have been through civil litigation and mediation would all agree that mediation has a number of clear advantages. For one, if the matter concerns a sensitive family law dispute or an employment law dispute, or if it contains issues of commercially sensitive information, well then mediation is a much more attractive option because it's an entirely confidential and private process. Likewise, Mediation is in almost all cases a much more cost-effective method compared to traditional civil litigation, especially if the parties engage in dispute at an early stage. Whereas with traditional civil litigation, a judge is much more restricted in what he or she can award. Typically, unless it's a case about an injunction or seeking a particular kind of order, all that can be awarded is compensation. The third advantage is that mediation can provide for a much more flexible outcome. Subject to the parameters of Irish law and what the mediator can get the parties to agree to, a mediation resolution can cover any manner of things. However, civil litigation is a lot more restricted in terms of what a judge can award. Unless it's a case involving an injunction where there may be orders involved, most civil litigation simply involves an award of compensation or not. The main disadvantage of mediation in my experience is that there is no guaranteed final outcome. If the mediator can get the parties to knock their heads together and reach an agreement, well then that's the perfect outcome. However, if the mediator can't reach that conclusion and discussions break down, well then the matter continues to civil litigation. And this is the point, that at least with civil litigation, whether you win or lose, there at least is a determination being made by the judge. In mediation there isn't. My experience of mediation as regards employment disputes, and I probably speak on behalf of all of our group when I say this, is that it can be a very effective means of resolving disputes. Two of the most protracted cases that I've been involved in in recent years were both finally or eventually resolved by way of mediation, 
And I suppose that's a point I should elaborate a little further on. If this isn't an overstretched analogy, in the same way that Ron Burgundy's co-host in Anchorman made the point about his aftershave working 60% of the time, all of the time, mediation will almost always eventually result in a resolution. And what I mean by that in practice is it's not always an overnight success. Sometimes you have to go back at it two or three times. But my point is, it's a very effective means of starting that process so that you will ultimately get to a resolution. So looking now at the legislation, there are three particular points that I think are relevant for employers that may present opportunities and issues to be aware of. Firstly, under Section 19 of the legislation, it provides that where there is an agreement to mediate in place and one party to the dispute seeks to issue civil proceedings, the other party can appear before the court and look to adjourn the proceedings until the parties have gone through mediation. To me, this may be an opportunity. If an employer builds in mediation as a form of dispute resolution in a contract of employment, and if an employee subsequently tries to litigate a matter before the civil courts, under Section 19, the employer may be able to frustrate or at very least delay the employee from rushing into court until the matter has been mediated. Similarly, it may also give the employer greater degree of control over privacy around the dispute if it can push the matter into mediation rather than allowing it go straight to the civil courts. There are limitations to this tactic though. For example, under the legislation it simply refers to an agreement to mediate and it's not quite clear if that means an agreement that was reached after the dispute had arisen and with that particular dispute in mind or if it would be so broad as to allow an employer rely upon it to cover a template clause in a contract of employment which was intended to cover any dispute that may arise at any point thereafter. To take it one step further, I wouldn't at all be confident that an employer could rely upon Section 19 to defeat an application for an injunction, or to in any way delay it, because I think an Irish High Court isn't going to accept that this legislation overrides the Court's inherent jurisdiction to grant an injunction in emergency circumstances. That said, none of us know for certain at this point how this particular provision will be interpreted, And assuming that an employer is comfortable with mediation as a form of dispute resolution, I think an employer has nothing to lose by building this clause into their standard contracts. So that's my first recommendation, that you should now be building this into your template contracts of employment. The second point arises under Section 21 of the Act. This provides that where a party to a dispute unreasonably refuses to engage in mediation or to attend that mediation, that the court may have regard to this decision when it comes to determining the issue of costs. For employers, what that means in practice is that, even if you win a high court dispute, if the employer is seen to have unreasonably refused to engage in mediation, that they may ultimately lose the issue of costs, so it may be a pyrrhic victory. In practice, there are two issues there arising from that. Firstly, it may be an opportunity for employers to use this cost pressure to push or encourage employees into mediation if it's a case that you really want to settle or that you really don't want any degree of publicity around. Conversely, if it's a case that the employer doesn't want to mediate and wants to go ahead in the civil courts, the employer is going to need to show that it had very good reason for refusing mediation. In my experience of the type of things that can come up in mediation, I think that would cover, for example, if the parties have already tried to mediate or settle a matter and there's no prospect of that happening. Similarly, if the parties had already reached a resolution, and since then the employee had reneged on the terms of the deal, such that the employer had no confidence in any subsequent deal that may come out of mediation, 
that to me would likewise be a reasonable basis for refusing to engage in mediation. But we'll have to wait and see how that's interpreted by the courts. The third point kind of refers to the first two points as well, in that there's an exception or a carve-out in the legislation. It states that any case which comes under the provisions of the Workplace Relations Commission or is being investigated by the Commission isn't covered by the Mediation Act. Now, what isn't clear from the drafting of the legislation is whether that means cases that are already actually issued before the Commission or it goes so far as to include cases that could have been issued before the Commission but which the employee has decided to pursue in a different form before the High Court. So, for example, any wrongful dismissal case or an injunction case in most cases, could well be issued as an unfair dismissal claim before the Workplace Relations Commission. Likewise, a high-value bonus case before the High Court as a breach of contract claim could equally have been a payment of wages claim before the Workplace Relations Commission. So we'll have to wait and see just how far this carve-out goes, because if it's very broad and covers all cases that could have been brought, well then it means the previous two points around the mediation clause in a contract and also the costs pressure may not be anywhere near as relevant. Overall, I do think this legislation is going to promote mediation all the more and that in the next five years or so, mediation will become an even more commonplace feature of workplace relations disputes. To me, the most interesting piece and the one that we'll really be watching is whether employers can rely upon the Section 19 provision around mediation clauses and contracts of employment and the extent to which employers will be able to rely upon this to take much greater control over where their cases are heard. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. The second issue I want to look at today is the case of an area manager be a transport company. This is a recent decision from an Irish adjudication officer. And if you're curious as to why this has such a bland, easily forgettable name, that's the practice of the Workplace Relations Commission when it comes to adjudication officer level decisions. All parties' names are anonymised. This whole issue came up quite suddenly in September of last year when the paternity leave legislation was enacted into Irish law. At the time, certainly nobody was suggesting that an employee going in paternity leave and an employee going in maternity leave are in identical circumstances. However, the general consensus was that paternity leave and maternity leave were sufficiently similar as concepts and that if an employer decided to treat a male employee less favourably when it came to pay during that period, that they were open to a claim of gender discrimination under the Employment Equality Act. As a result, and probably also because the period of time involved for most employers at two weeks wasn't all that high, the majority of employers who dealt with this issue decided to pay for paternity leave, if they were already providing pay for maternity leave. The case that came before the adjudication officer was one of those employers that had decided not to pay paternity leave. The facts of the case are pretty obvious at this point, But in short, this employee was due to take paternity leave and found out that it was unpaid. He also found out at the same time that his female colleagues were, however, enjoying 26 weeks paid maternity leave. He brought a claim of gender discrimination under the Employment Equality Act, arguing quite simply that as a new male parent, he was being treated less favourably than a new female parent. The employer's case dealt with a number of different items, most of which were actually irrelevant, but there was one core point to it. The employer argued that as a matter of both Irish and European law, an employer was entitled to treat a female employee differently in connection with maternity and pregnancy. The way the adjudication officer dealt with this question was as follows. 
He first of all explained that the whole purpose of maternity leave is to extend the protection available to female employees in connection with pregnancy and maternity, in light of the special circumstances that apply at that time in their lives. To support this point, he referred to the EU directive which introduced the maternity leave legislation and quoted from that, stating that it is without prejudice to provisions on the protection of female employees, particularly as regards pregnancy and maternity. He made separate reference to a quote from the Employment Equality Act, which I think illustrates the point even more effectively, and what it said was as follows. Nothing in this Act shall make it unlawful for an employer to arrange for or provide treatment which confers benefits on women in connection with pregnancy and maternity. Taking these two points together, the adjudication officer agreed with the employer's position that the enhanced salary it was providing to female employees at this time was a measure specifically designed to confer such a benefit on female employees in regard to their pregnancy and maternity. The adjudication officer also agreed that it was simply misplaced or misinformed to compare paternity leave to maternity leave. He concluded, therefore, that an employer is perfectly entitled to make special provision for female employees at the time of maternity leave and that this was protected in legislation, even if that means paying female employees a higher rate of pay than male employees during a period of maternity leave compared to paternity leave. So what does this decision mean for you as employers in Ireland? Firstly, if you are one of those employers that hasn't yet decided to pay paternity leave, well then this is obviously a very welcome and timely decision, because it's a very solid basis upon which to reject any such claim. And given the value of two weeks paternity benefit to the employee in this case, it's highly unlikely to be appealed. So this is likely to be the current position on the law for quite some time. If, however, you are one of those employers that did decide to pay paternity leave, unfortunately, this decision isn't going to be a green light for you to stop paying that. And that's because for the majority of employers who did introduce this benefit, it was introduced on a contractual basis. So unless you made it very clear that it was a discretionary benefit, or you have very clear discretion in your contracts to revise such terms and conditions, it is going to be a contractual entitlement on the employee's part, and any attempt to remove it may well be challenged. On a related note, some of you may have seen coverage in the Irish media in recent weeks of a proposal on the government's part to introduce what I would describe as a 12-month period of shared maternity and paternity leave for new parents in the first 12 months of a baby's life. I didn't cover this in the news roundup because I thought it related more to this particular decision. The media reports also indicated that this proposal was to be introduced within the lifetime of the current government, which probably at the moment has no more than three years left to run. The proposal didn't give any detail on how this would actually work. However, on a positive front, there is no doubt that a proposal along these lines, once it's up and running in practice, would deliver a real cultural shift in attitudes towards employees taking periods of extended leave for childcare. Again, we don't have the details of how this would work, but there is a broadly comparable concept within the UK legislation at the moment, and my experience of talking to colleagues and clients in the UK is that it is extremely difficult to work in practice. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. 
Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.